Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our uh, servant sacrifice. He came to not to um, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And through his death, many are justified. We praise you that we are among those. And Lord, that's why we love to sing about our Savior, because we know uh, where we deserve to be. We know where we deserve to end up, but because of your grace and your mercy and none of our work, we are declared to be righteous, and and Lord, you are so merciful to us as we continue to, to live our lives. Uh, we would think that, that our lives would be one of complete and utter devotion to you, but we often have slip-ups and, and we um, enjoy the things of this world too much and turn away from you at times and so we are amazed at your continual mercy and drawing us back to yourself. We pray that you'd uh, continue to do that. Lord, help us this morning. We want uh, the name of Christ and His death and resurrection to be known by more and more people. We, we don't want them to be um, uh, prevented from understanding the Gospel because of some sort of preconceived ideas or wrong ideas. And so we pray that you help us as we think about how to defend the faith and how to um, go on the offensive effectively by commanding people to repent and believe. This hour as we reflect on these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we took a closer look at the three main worldviews. Christian worldview, pre-modern, which is the pre-modern worldview, the uh, modern worldview and the postmodern worldview, and we said that they can be summarized in one of two ways: with an open or a closed system. Anyone want to help define for us what an open system is? Remember the little box and a closed system. What's the open? Okay, so what are we talking about there? Okay, so that God is able to interact with His creation as the open. That is, He's able to come in. He's not a God who is far off and removed from His creation. He's one that who is able to come in and interact with His creation. He didn't just create it and then let it go. The closed system would be what? Right. So He's outside of this system that, that we currently live in. Um, so those are the two main uh, systems that we could divide all of these three worldviews in. Now let's see if uh, you can help me define what these worldviews are. What, what would a pre-modern worldview be? Pre- okay. It's actually a little bit less specific than that because included in the pre-modern worldview are people like um, Catholics and Muslims. So uh, the pre-modern worldview effectively believes that all of existence comes as a result of a divine creator and that he is providential and redemptive. Um, and as Christians, of course, our understanding is what Paul's talking about here, that that God is uh, God has sent Christ to be our Savior. And, of course, we believe in the open system. That is, that, that God is both transcendent. He, he is above and beyond us. He is high and lifted up. He is the Creator, but He's also near. That's the imminent part. Remember, both transcendent and imminent. 
All right, how about the modern worldview? So if the pre-modern worldview believes in faith over reason, the modern worldview believes in reason over faith. That's when you got the Enlightenment period, the Romantic period, where it was all about either the mind or the feelings. And it wasn't about faith. If you want to come to an understanding of God, it has to be through your senses. You have to rationalize it first, or you have to feel it, experience it, uh, before you can have faith. Where the Bible teaches that that it, that it is uh, without fi- faith we cannot please God. We can't even come to God without faith. So faith is actually first and foremost. That's part of the pre-modern worldview. So the modern worldview flipped it on its head and said, no, it's reason first. And that's why when you come into contact with people, um, it, it constantly comes back to the idea of reasoning. You have to... Um, they're constantly wanting you to reason with them. And we're going to talk about that later, how that we can't ultimately have a neutral ground when we, come, when we talk to unbelievers. But um, the modern worldview believes in the closed system that either God is transcendent or He's imminent. That not, He's not both. Either He's the deistic God, you know, like our many of our founding fathers of this country. He's the deistic God who just kind of put the world into motion and then let it go and He doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. Or He is the God who is in all things, the pantheistic type of God, like the nature God type thing, uh, where He's not high and lifted up, exalted. He's He's our buddy. He's our pal. He's that's all he is. Um, we don't we don't revere him in any way. We just he's just part of us, or something. It's it's really a bizarre way to think about God. But but what we see is there is there's two differences. Or they take the transcendent and the eminent, and they only choose one. That's the modern worldview. The postmodern worldview, remember, actually doesn't believe in either one of those boxes, the closed or the open system. They actually believe there is no box. Why, the, why even ask the question? Right? How can we really know? Or who really cares if there's a God? That's Relativism, yeah. Right. Well, there is no absolute truth. That's why the box... Yeah, there is no absolute truth. There... There's just whatever you think is good for you. Whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's good for me is good for me. So let's just all leave each other alone and we'll all coexist. That's why you see that bumper sticker all the time. Uh, coexist. Um, doesn't really matter which religion you choose. Um, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter what God calls us to do. And so they live in a world, in their minds, where the idea of God is laughable to them. That it's impossible or extremely difficult to define reality itself. Like, who are we? That's the, that's the whole Keanu Reeves type thing. I was going to do an impression again, but I'm not going to do that. Okay. Um, like, yeah, yeah, it'll come out Chinese. Yeah. All of my impressions are Chinese. Yeah, that was for the recording. All right. This morning we want to consider the topic of the existence of God, and I think uh, that as long as we answer, as long as we ask the wrong question, we're going to get the wrong answer. Um, so when it comes to the existence of God, I think we need to ask the right question. Now, some people say there are no bad questions. I think that's 
that's false. I think there are lots of bad questions, and I'll give you an example one here in just a second. So let me just give an example of asking the wrong question when when uh, playing a game called Mother May I. You ever play this game? I think this is at least as old as I am. Might be as old as you are. Okay. Okay. So the the person stands at the front, and they're the mother, I guess, and everybody else is standing at the back of the room, and they say. Mother, may I, one at a time, can I take five big steps or five baby steps or whatever? And is the mother turned backwards? I don't, I don't remember. Okay, she's turned backwards. She doesn't know how far ahead they are and all that. So, so you have to ask the right question there. Um, if the person in, that's playing the game is asking the question, you know, when is the weather going to change or why is it so hot in here, they're not going to get very far in the game. Right? They haven't understood the proper question. So this is kind of a silly example, but, but philosophers for centuries, I think, have been asking the wrong question. And the wrong question, I think, is this. Does God exist? I think that's the wrong question. The right question is, how can I know that God exists? The reason I say that's the wrong question, that is, that does God exist, is because Genesis 1 assumes that everyone knows this. In the beginning, God. And Romans 1, we're going to look at later today. Everything that has been known about God is clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that they are without excuse. There's no reason to ask the question, does God exist? Okay, It's like asking the question, am I here today? Yes, I am. Okay, this is just like, it's, it's obvious. The problem is that, that philosophy, and sadly much of Christianity, answers the question, uh, in the wrong way, and that, and that is they answer the right question in the wrong way. First they ask the wrong question, then they ask, answer the right question in the wrong way. The right question is, how can I know God exists? That's what I think we should, as Christians should be able to answer. That's what even unbelievers should be able to answer. How can I know that God exists? And so what philosophers have worked to do is try to answer that question, how can we know that God exists? based on philosophical arguments. So that's what we're going to look at today. We want to look at the history of some of these philosophical ar- arguments that started with, really developed by Thomas Aquinas and then has, has moved on over the centuries and has, have been developed even more. And you're going to find them for anybody that, that has a, a basic understanding of, of um, philosophy is, is going to know these sorts of things. And a lot of Christians are starting to use these as tactics to reach people. So, in order to get a picture of the arguments themselves, it's good to first look at the history of the proofs, so to speak, of the existence of God. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was a Roman Catholic theologian and a philosopher of the 13th century. We talked about him a few weeks ago. He was one of the first to formally attempt to prove God rationally. he reasoned that a person could attain a knowledge of the existence of God independent of any special revelation. Okay, that's where you get this idea of reason over faith. We don't need to hear from God if we want to know how we can know that God exists. We don't need to hear from God. We can just reason to that point. And here's the proof that he gave for that. By the way, the reason that he could say... Uh, that that a person could come to an understanding of God through rational proofs is because of Psalm 52, 1. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And um, 
so he says faith actually comes as a result of knowledge that we we receive or we yeah we receive faith faith on the basis of knowledge and what the scriptures actually teach is that we receive faith on the basis of God's grace on the basis of a gift God grants us the faith and then the knowledge comes because the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they're foolishness to him so let's quickly look at Aquinas' five proofs here. The unmoved mover. Perhaps you've heard of these before. If you took any philosophy in school, you, you would have heard these, certainly. The unmoved mover. If anything moves, it moves because of something that has moved it. Right? Every action has an equal and opposite what? Reaction. Okay? It's one of the thermal or one of the laws of thermodynamics, right? So if something's moved, something had to to, if something is moving, then something had to have moved it. Something had to uh, give it energy, give it force to be able to do that. So, if the world is moving, then someone has to move that. And so, that can't just go back forever. We could just keep asking questions. Okay, how does the worm move? How does, you know, whatever. We keep going back all the way to the world. Well, what moves the world? And then, eventually, we get back to an uh, an infinite being, some kind of some kind of uh, unmoved mover. The second one is a first cause. Everything that is caused, everything that has a cause, everything that is has a cause, and so there has to be a first cause. So it's basically answering the question, why? Why does this exist? Why does this exist? Why is this all the way back to, eventually you get to, to God, is what Thomas, Thomas Aquinas says. Then thirdly, his third proof is a necessary being. Um, Everything that exists only exists through something that already existed before it. So the reason that you exist is because someone existed before you, your parents, namely, right? And the reason they exist is because someone existed before them. And you go all the way back to Adam. And the reason they exist is because someone existed before them. So there has to be a necessary being, an initial being, in order to start this off. It can't just infinitely go back backwards. There has to be someone that started it all. Fourthly, the most perfect being... If there is any good in the world, then there has to be a best. Okay, so if you think about it in terms of sports, um, if there's any good, then there has to be a best. If someone's a good player, there has to be a best player. Like who's the best basketball player of all time? You know, there there has to be one. And the same thing is true with he would argue everything in life. He wasn't thinking basketball at that time, but but if there's any good in life, then there has to be a best. He's saying. And there, so that means there has to be a perfect being. Then the designer one, this may be more common. Uh, everything that made has a design, and so there must be some intelligent being by whom all natural things are directed to their end. That is, something designed it. And he argues that this designer is God. So Thomas Aquinas kind of set the foundation for philosophers to say, here's how we can know God exists. Then William Paley came along in the 18th century so 500 years later, and uh, accepted Aquinas' proofs for God and became an avid supporter of Thomas Aquinas. And the most famous contribution, contribution that he made was the universe maker proof. That is, that if uh, it's the watchmaker idea, that if, you know, the intricacy of a watch has to be made by a designer. And so if you look at creation, it has these such intricate um, creation and so as a result, there has to be a creator. So he called that the universe maker. It couldn't just come about 
Uh, perhaps you've heard this sort of argument, you know, it, to, to, to combat evolutionists. You say, well, the evolutionists, they just kind of think it all comes by chance, but actually it has an intricate design. It can't just happen. And that is true. Um, and I'll talk, to, I'll talk to you about some of the, <coughs> the benefits of these kinds of arguments, but also some of the, the problems, mainly the main problems with them. <coughs> so let's, uh, let's try to summarize these main proofs for God into four categories, and then I'll talk to you about each one, why I think they're invalid. Okay, first, the argument for the essence of God's being. The essence of God's being. That is that God is a perfect being or a necessary being. This is what Aquinas used. I think it was number three and four. <coughs> yeah, number three and four. That's, that's the idea of essence. That, that there has to be some kind of existence that existed before us. The, the reason that this argument, I think, is defective is that all logic depends on a presupposed existence of God. The way that Solomon described it is this. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So all knowledge resides in and is sourced in God. We cannot know anything except for the fact that God is. Okay? Except for the fact that God first existed before us. And so what we're doing is we're actually assuming what we're already trying to prove. And so if we take a log logical argument for the existence of God, then the question that we would have to ask as, as careful students of the Scripture is, where does logic come from? You see, see what philosophers are doing? They're actually borrowing from what they've already received from God. They're using logic, the laws of logic, because who's to say, like, let's, let's take a postmodern, a person with a postmodern worldview, okay? Who's to say that any of their logic actually works? Right? I mean, who who's to say... Who's, who's the one who makes the rules for logic? And what they already assume is that they're using these sorts of logical arguments in order to come to an understanding of, um, of what they're trying to prove. The second category is the uncaused cause. Um, this is what philosophers call the cosmological argument, that everything that had a beginning had a cause, and the universe had to have a beginning, and therefore the universe has a cause. Uh, the problem with this argument is that it's impossible to prove scientifically. Right? How do we prove something scientifically? It has to be what? Repeatable and what? And observable. Right? You have to be able to repeat it in a lab somewhere, and it has to, and you have to be able to see it happen. And so the uncaused cause actually doesn't work. We we use that sometimes as Christians to argue against evolution, evolutionism. We say, you can't observe it and you can't repeat it. So it doesn't exist. But here's the truth. We can't observe and repeat creation either, can we? None, no, no one of us was there when creation happened. And so what does that tell us? The only way that we can know about creation is if God speaks. If God created the world and never said anything about what He did, we can't know about how the world cre was created. The only way we can know is, is that God spoke. And so, really, we're both arguing, that is, both creationists and evolutionists, are both arguing based on assumptions. That is, something that's already been told to us or something that we already believe. 
The third category is the argument for a grand designer. Okay, all designs imply that there has to be a designer. The universe has a great design, and therefore there must be a great designer of the universe. Okay, so that's the argument. Um, this is the watchmaker. This is the uh, what's the last one there? The designer, the one that Aquinas gave. So if there's a building, there has to be an architect. If there's a painting, there has to be an artist. If there's a salad today, there has to be someone who prepared it, right? Um, if there's any sort of coded messages or something more detailed, like a, a computer program, it requires an intelligent designer. And, and we know this to be true because we've seen it happen over and over again. And what we also know is that the greater the design, the greater the designer, right? The better the salad is like, wow, we've got a chef here. Um, the classic example that they use for this is if you had a thousand monkeys sitting on, at a typewriter for millions of years. So start today and we'll just count for the next million years. If you had a thousand monkeys, they would never be able to produce Hamlet by just typing it out, bouncing around, hitting letters. They never would be able to produce something with the quality of Hamlet. And yet Shakespeare produced it on the first try. That is, the more complex the design, the greater the intelligence of the designer. Shakespeare is much wiser than a thousand monkeys is the point. And so the logical conclusion that they come to is that, well, if, if we as humans try to create the world as it is today, if we put together a million human minds and tried to form our own little world, it would be impossible. And so only, here's the argument, only a designer more infinitely intelligent than humans could do such a thing. And that is true. I mean, their, their argument there is a valid one. But what I'm suggesting is that's not going to bring anybody to saving faith by explaining that to them. Um, and, and further, e even if you got to that point, even if you were able to convince someone of that, use the thousand monkey illustration, then a million human illustration, and then say, well, there you go. God exists. All that you can prove is that a Creator exists. You, you haven't proven that there is a personal God who is both intelligent and personal, the one who cares about you. You haven't proven that. And so I think in that way it's defective, this third one. The fourth one is the moral argument. The moral argument is championed by C.S. Lewis, who's the writer of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, this is the Screw Tape Letters. He also the author of that as well. It's lots of lots of great writing. Um, very easy to read. Uh, author, his, his basis comes from the Apostle Paul, so he's a believer. Romans two twelve to fifteen, um, his argument is this moral argument: if there is a moral law, and there is, like people understand a basic difference between right and wrong. Like who told people that the, that the nine uh, eleven incident was bad? Like how did people know that, even if they weren't Christians? Well, everybody has this moral law. And so what C.S. Lewis argued is that a moral law implies that someone actually gave a law, that there was a moral law giver. And since there is a moral law, then there has to be a moral law giver. Um, but the problem with this moral argument is that it, it, um, 
it, it doesn't point us to the source of that law. It just says that there is a moral lawgiver. So we could, we could uh, talk about all sorts of other possibilities for how a moral law came into place. It doesn't necessarily prove that there is a personal, transcendent, and imminent God. So what are we to make of all these supposed proofs of the existence of God? And here are some questions I think we need to ask in order to properly evaluate these evidences for God's existence. Turn to Romans chapter 1. And while you turn there, I'll ask the questions. Romans chapter 1. Can man think about anything apart from what God has given to them? Can, can God be prove, proven through rational means? Is it worthwhile to try to convince unbelievers of God's existence through arguments of his through rational means of his arguments for his existence? The answer to these questions will be based on I think a proper framework of theology that is supported and founded in scriptures and that's where we want to turn now. So that was kind of a long introduction that leads us to what we want to be thinking about this morning. Essentially, we want to answer the question, how does man come to know anything? How do we come to know anything? What is the source of knowledge? The Bible teaches that knowledge of God is innate. The knowledge of God's existence is what we're talking about. It is innate, it is rational, and it's universal. And we'll talk about each part of that, part of that uh, definition here in just a second. So let's read Romans chapter 1. And would someone read for us verses 18 to 21? Okay, so there's three things that we want to see about where do we come to know anything about God's existence. And the first is that this knowledge of God's existence is innate. It is innate. God has given to each person an innate knowledge of Himself. Each person is born with this knowledge that God exists. That is, that we receive that. No one sat you down in a classroom and told you that God existed. You knew that from the time that you were small. It was involuntary and passive on your part. And the only other way that a person can come to know God's existence according to rational means is by learning of Him. But what we understand from the Scriptures is that we received our knowledge of God uh, innately. Now, one of the main differences between innate knowledge and acquired knowledge is that uh, is the content level. Like, what amount of knowledge do we have about God? And this is important because what I don't want you to do is to go too far and to think, well, everybody has an innate knowledge of God. Oh, sorry, Jonathan. I just realized I didn't give you a handout here. Um, I realized I said handout again, too. And I'm waiting for Greg to make a comment. 
Um, so, so what level of content do we have about God's knowledge? That's the question. Because what we can think is, well, everybody knows that God exists, so everybody can be saved. The person out in the, the remote tribe in Africa can be saved apart from special revelation. And that's not what the Scriptures teach. That's not what I'm suggesting. So what level of knowledge uh, is innate? That's the question. And the answer is the existence of God. I mean, uh, look at verse 20. It tells us three things about Him that every person knows. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature... So the, the fact that He exists, that's the essence of His being, uh, the, the fact that He is powerful and likely that, that He had created the world. Everyone knows that. We don't have to argue about that with anyone. Um, but in addition to the knowledge of God and His existence being innate, it's also rational. So there's three things here about God's our, our understanding of God's existence. That is every person's understanding. Verses 10 8. Secondly, it is rational. The Apostle Paul explains in Romans 1 that it is clearly seen. It is clearly seen in verse 20. And understood. This is, this is the fact that every rational mind knows this. Every rational mind knows that God exists. He knows that He is a creature of God and, listen to this, that He is responsible to God. Every creature knows this. However, the problem is, as Bill read earlier, they suppress that truth, don't they? Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. What truth? That God exists and that He owns them and that they are responsible to Him. They suppress that. Why? Why? Because they're fools. Psalm 52.1 The fool says in their heart there is no God. We said that. From the time that we were young until the time we were saved. We said there is no God because we didn't want to submit ourselves to Him. We wanted to live as our own God. Right? So everything that is... Uh, every single person knows that God exists innate within them and it is also rational. If God exists, the evidence of His existence is abundant and plain so that it is both unscientific. We don't have to come to a scientific proof. Okay, I need to see that God exists. We don't have to come to that kind of proof. Everybody knows it. And anyone who does not believe in Him is defying Him. They are living in sin. So, first, innate. Second, rational. Third, universal. What do you think I mean by universal? What's that? Every single person who has a rational mind. Now, we could argue about some, you know, obviously like a, a newborn baby or someone that has some mental disability. Oh. When I said mental disability, you pointed at Jared, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, so it's not only innate and rational but every single rational creature who is made in the image of God understands 
that God exists. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, uh, His, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Every single person. But because of their depravity, they smother the truth because they hate the truth. The natural man has oppressed upon him the evidence of this fundamental truth in the very nature of man so that there is nowhere where God is without a witness about His existence, that is. Okay? There's nowhere on this planet and ever has been or ever will be where someone says, I had no idea that God existed. They can say that, but it's because they're suppressing the truth. They know that God exists. So, what do we do with these rational proofs for the existence of God? Um, here's kind of my critique on them uh, as we conclude today. But before we get there, do you have any thoughts or questions? All right. Although all people know who the true God is, the way by which they come to know Him is not through human logic or reason. The belief in God, that is that He exists, okay, we're not talking about Jesus and the Gospel, those come through special revelation. You have to hear. No one can come uh, without hearing. How can they call on Him in whom they have not heard? That's talking about uh, the Gospel. But I'm talking about God's existence. The belief in God's existence can never be the result of rational or logical arguments because the Bible never uses logical arguments to prove God. Cornelius Van Til, okay, the book that I'm using uh, primarily through this study is, is um, Greg Bonson's book. He was a student of Cornelius Van Til, who I said was a lot deeper. But, but he uh, really has a lot to say about this presuppositional approach to, um, to uh, apologetics. And he states that the theistic proofs compromise the clarity of natural revelation since they're merely a result of probable conclusions. So what, what do we do at the end of all of Thomas Aquinas' proofs? Where do we come? We basically come to a probable conclusion that God exists through these, these, um, these rational evidences or proofs. The natural man perceives God's invisible attributes while simultaneously suppressing them. So while you're having an argument with an unbeliever about the proofs for why God exists, at the same time, they're doing what? They're suppressing it. They're pushing it down. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to respond to it. And so these theistic proofs actually become self-defeating because if men already know that God exists, I think it's a mistake to try to prove it to them. There is a limit to uh, rational proofs. At best, they only prove an existence of a probable being, not necessarily the true God Himself. The hard reality is that the proofs of, God's, uh, of God, independent of what God has told us, only fall short of accomplishing that goal. Instead, it, le it leads a person to someone other than the true God. And that's why you can have an argument with someone else who has a pre-modern worldview but doesn't submit themselves to the true and living God because they have a different idea of who God is. And you've used all these proofs to try to show them that the true God exists and they're, they're thinking about a completely different God. 
That's, this is a result of natural man rejecting the true God by means of his unrighteousness. And therefore, what he accepts cannot be the true God. And anything or anyone that is worshipped that's not the true God is an idol. And so what we can do with these rational arguments, we can build up all these things, show them, okay, we got you in the corner, you have to accept. And what they may be accepting is not the true and living God, but rather an idol. The problem with Aquinas' um, Aquinas's approach there is that he makes the mind independent and autonomous. That means that when you try to prove that God exists to a morally depraved being, I think we actually cater to their desire for independence or autonomy. When we try to use rational proofs, we actually cater to their desire for independence from God. This is what we've been talking about before. We want, or they want us to think that there is some kind of neutral ground where we can come and just, okay, let's just come on the neutral ground and let's not have anything. We're just going to have a blank slate. Now, what I'm telling you is that's not possible. There is no neutral ground. There's common ground. There are things that are common between what we believe and what they believe. That's good. Come to common ground. But neutral ground is different. It's saying that, okay, let's not think that God exists and let's not think that God doesn't exist. Let's use the mind to get to the place where we decide which one is true. And what I'm telling you is that that doesn't happen. That's impossible. Because everyone already knows that God exists. And when we come to this supposed neutral ground where we say, okay, neither God exists or or He doesn't exist, Now let's try to figure it out based on our reasoning. Then we've actually given over the autonomy that they're looking for. We give up ground in order to reach them. You see, Romans 1.18 assumes that every person already has a knowledge about God. Are you confident of that? Every single person already has a knowledge that God exists. Cornelius Van Til states it this way, I cannot even argue for belief in God's existence without without already having taken Him for granted. We can't argue for God's existence unless we first take Him for granted. In fact, what tends to happen in these proofs is that they're used by people who already already believe and submit to God. Right? Thomas Aquinas, he was not a reprobate in the sense that he rejected God's existence completely. He was a guy who already believed in God's existence and he wanted to prove it to people. And people who tend to use these arguments are not people who are looking for the truth, so to speak. They're people who already have it. So, yeah, it's going to be convincing for us because we're talking to each other and we already know that God exists. But for someone who's saying, no, God doesn't exist, these proofs, I think, are not as persuasive as we might like to think. Again, we're giving up ground to them, um, saying that really the mind is king. You know, our rational proofs are king. That's what's king here. So, I I, I realize we want to be accommodating to the unbeliever, but if you look at uh, Peter's approach to the Jews, obviously they already believe that God exists, so he, he starts with, God's demand for their lives. He says, you know, you already know that God exists. You already know the Creator. So 
So in Acts 4, he just goes right to the fact that God owns them and, and they need to be submitting themselves to him. When Paul talks to the pagans, the pagan philosophers of the Areopagus in Acts 17, do you know how he starts? Not with proofs for God's existence. In fact, he starts with an assumption that God already exists. Effectively saying, you know that God exists. Okay, You have this statue to the unknown God. And what I'm telling you is that there is a God who can be known and that is known through your understanding and that you need to come to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. So He, he moves right into that. I would, I would uh, commend that chapter to you, Acts 17, uh, as you're thinking about these things because um, I, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where, where someone tries to go after uh, making proofs. The natural question that arises from a study of the proofs of God's existence is, can a believer be convinced that God exists from these arguments? Once a natural man is presented with the truth of God, he cannot change his attitude any more than a leopard can change his spot. So if we say, okay, let's come to neutral ground and let's just move our way towards what we're trying to figure out. They can't change their spots. They are prejudiced by sin they are blind. They are spiritually dead. And so the blindness of that person will keep them from seeing the truth. Only God, through His Spirit, can, just like He did with us, remove the blinders and make a natural man see the truth as inherently truthful. Only God can do that. So trying to reason with an unbeliever is like trying to rationalize colors with a blind person. We can do it all we want. We already know that colors exist. We see. But if we try to get a blind person to say, listen, I'm telling you, this is blue. They will never understand. Okay, The truth is, they already know colors exist, effectively. What I'm saying is, God exists. They know it. But they're blinded to that truth. They suppress it in unrighteousness. Even if an unbeliever were capable of reasoning objectively about the existence of God, these arguments I don't think actually prove that there's any more than a world architect. There's some kind of, of uh, maker, but it doesn't prove a universal, uh, a, not a universal, but a, an eternal, personal creator. So the best approach to understanding God's existence is, I think, to have a proper understanding of the Scripture and since Scripture doesn't have any formal arguments for the existence of God, then why should we, as uh, defenders of the faith, all right, always be ready for, to answer, to give an answer for the hope that is within you? That's kind of our key verse for this series, Second Peter 3.15. Always be ready. We're, we're trying to defend the faith. But all proofs in, in, in this regard that we've been looking at today, I think, are formulated in vain. So, last last point. Why is this so important for our evangelism? I think our proper view of how to handle the existence of God is important because the foundation for what you need to prove to an unbeliever has already been established. God exists. So, you can just pass right over that. In fact, when I talk to unbelievers, I, I never even get into that subject. I mean, I, I don't even... Try to, to rationalize it with them. I just say that, listen, God has created all of us. 
And He demands something from us. We've turned our backs on Him because of our sin. And, and we need to recognize that He is serious about our sin and He will judge our sin. And I haven't had one person, I know there are people out there, and you may have had them, but I haven't had one person say, well, wait a second, how do you know that God exists? But if they did, I wouldn't move to these proofs. I would go right to Romans 1 and say, everyone knows that God exists. And the fool is the one who denies it. Maybe not in those terms, but, but that's what Psalm 52.1 says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, we already have the foundation that we need. God exists. Now from there, what does that mean for them? It means that God owns them. It means that God has paid a price to redeem them. And so, this person that you're talking to needs to respond in faith and repentance. And that's why you don't have to ask them a question. Do you want to respond in faith and repentance? You command them. You're a herald on behalf of the King who sent you. He said, go out and make disciples. Go and tell them. Do you know what you tell them? You don't ask them, hey, do you want to come back to the King? He's got a lot of good things for you. You go and tell them. Repent and believe. You know God exists. And now you need to repent of your sins. You know that you are responsible to the Creator. God exists and He makes demands on our lives. That's what they need to understand. So that's really the first step of evangelism. It's not proving that God exists. It is proving that, that God has the demand on their lives. And that they need to turn to Him. That He has sent His Son to die to pay for the sins of those who will submit themselves to Him. Any questions or comments? All right. Well, good. Appreciate your attention. I realize it's a little bit more difficult uh, subject matter and get into some of this philosophy that you may not be, may or may not be interested in. But I find it to be um, immediately practical for talking to people because whether they know it or not, whether they understood what Thomas Aquinas taught a long time ago, a lot of people uh, have ideas about God and how they can reject that truth. And what I'm suggesting is that 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 um, using rational arguments is not the way to get a person to to accept God's existence. All right, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for uh, the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for the general revelation that every single person has that that there is a Creator and that He is eternal. And um, and Lord, we. We recognize that. We are confident of that fact that all of these people who have been opposing you and your your leadership in their lives, your lordship, um, they recognize it as well. Uh, but Lord, we're also thankful for special revelation that you are not a God who just showed us, written the law in our hearts, showed us that you existed uh, just by the various things in nature and just by in- innately giving that to us, but you also have revealed to us that Jesus is the way and and uh, to you. And so we have this entire Bible that we treasure and that we hold very closely to us and that we revere because it is the very words that come from you. And so we thank you that you have spoken and that we have been given the eyes to be able to see. You've softened our hearts so that we could understand it. 
And we pray that You'd help us to, um, to not only treasure these words that You've given to us, but also to, um, to, to be faithful stewards of them by helping others to understand them as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.